Please be seated. Sometimes I hate that we are driven to some extent by the news cycle. I'm loath to come off as beginning every homily with bad news. But I feel that I must confess to you, I cannot deny that the endlessness of mass shooting events in this country really hurts. It hurts in great part because it's kind of a lightning rod aspect of a greater and more pervasive culture of violence in this country. So I have recently been reflecting in my spirit about where it will all end, trying desperately to leave the door open all the while for some kind of a solution. And so I came upon this gospel passage for today, where I think I have found great spiritual wisdom that I would like to share with you. Because I wonder if you might find wisdom here too. So I'd like to try to begin today by taking us into the upper room where we will meet the disciples. So let me ask you very briefly to just notice your breath. Don't change it, just notice it. And maybe while you're there, notice how you feel. One more breath and as you exhale, shift your focus from this sacred space toward the one in question where the disciples find themselves on Easter night. They're hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Don't forget though, they themselves are Jews. So it isn't so much Jews that they're afraid of. It's the temple leaders who are in cahoots with Rome. And why are the temple leaders so scary to them in this, at this moment? Because our disciples are traumatized. They've just witnessed a series of events more shocking than anything they could have imagined, which is actually a little strange on one hand because Jesus has told them repeatedly exactly what to expect. And yet, they became like deer in the headlights, to use an anachronistic term, as right before their very eyes, their beloved master was seized and detained, menaced, verbally abused, savagely beaten and tortured, and finally crucified. All of which they witnessed. But how did they witness it? For some of them it amounted to glancing back over a shoulder while running away. And I'm thinking that's a thing that is bound to influence their feelings as they hide together. Violence had been escalating with increasing force as each of them turned and fled. Fled instead of sticking around to help out. Some among them had maybe, and it's only a maybe, just put a toe on the path of a new understanding of what Messiah actually means. But think about it, before they even had a chance to fully adopt this new understanding, the one they thought was he, their beloved teacher, the one who in their hope of hopes was going to rise up and somehow vanquish all their persecutors, finally rescuing them from hundreds more years of oppression. This beloved leader never rose up at all. 
There had been no great show of strength. In fact, he had been destroyed in the most heinous and embarrassing way. It's not hard to imagine that what they were experiencing, and for a number of days now, was the very definition of cognitive dissonance. A condition that we will soon see Thomas gets the chance to embody for us in a very helpful way. But first, we get Jesus. Do you think he knew what was going on in that room? How would he share in the exquisite tenderness and sympathy they were probably feeling? Did he pop into the room from out of nowhere and find himself surprised to see such great sadness and even purposelessness in his dear friends? Not only that, I think all of what was swirling about them was made even worse by the interweaving of some scorching self-recrimination and blame. Blaming themselves, each other, the Romans, the temple leaders, one or two of them maybe even blaming Jesus for not rec rec rescuing them, for letting them down so completely. All hopes dashed. Even hopes they didn't even know they had. Every heart in that room wounded in ways language isn't even able to express. Into this incredibly intense atmosphere, Jesus enters and he says, peace. Theologian James Allison likes to begin his interpretation of Jesus' most important work in the world right here, in the resurrection experience of the disciples. Jesus' appearance, and perhaps even more significant, his offering of peace, indicates his coming to them is as a presence of forgiveness. Forgiveness that flows directly from the cross. The cross from which he did not accuse, did not demand retribution or accountability or consequences in his name, the cross from which he did not castigate or otherwise blame in the least. Quite the opposite, in fact. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And all of this in its utter and complete incomprehensibility flows into the room with him and into their hearts. The disciples had all abandoned Jesus, becoming complicit with his murderers. And the fact that the resurrection was happening to them was an experience of forgiveness for them. Sadly, Thomas is absent. <clears throat> or is it sad? I'm betting Jesus sees it as an opportunity. His peace offering to the disciples is that very special brand of peace that comes of forgiveness. And it is strangely mighty mightier than anything even remotely connected to blame or retribution in any way. Mightier than whole histories of rituals through which the supposedly faithful feel expiated or atoned. But as mighty as this forgiveness is, there's something even mightier, more important. And if we look even just a little more deeply at Thomas, we can get a real sense of what that is and why it's so significant. Thomas was clearly navigating much the same conditions of spirit the disciples had been facing when Jesus first visited. All the sadness and disappointment, not to mention the two-headed dragon of guilt and blame. 
but he gets a very special gift in addition. Thomas was still shuddering at the horror of the one they thought to be Messiah, whatever that means, having been so gruesomely executed, right? <clears throat> Jesus was supposed to help them turn around the oppressive violence of the Romans. How could one who seemed so powerless against violence actually be the one who is saving us from it? Why? would God raise someone executed in utter shame? That's doubting Thomas's doubt. How could someone so shamed be the Messiah worthy of resurrection? But that's only part of the problem. Because undergirding this monument to fear, and in a way that's actually more powerful because it is unseen, is the content of belief that makes Thomas incredulous. The belief I refer to is all about the importance, the significance, and the awe-inducing power of the violence inflicted upon Jesus. And even more than that, because even though it is unseen and it is so inextricably attached the kind of response that is demanded of those who say they love him. What kind of response to horrific violence is demanded by those who say they love him? You see, our cure for violence has long been sacred violence. A violence we say is okay for the sake of keeping order. Some of us can go so far as to recognize that there is another cure for violence, a nonviolent cure, but a great many, even in that group, find that to be God's cure and unreachable or even inappropriate for us to attempt. And yet God submitted to our sacred violence on the cross in order to reveal it as meaningless and powerless compared to God's power of life. The resurrection of the one we executed puts us face to face with the most difficult thing for us to believe. That is, that the only way to ultimately cure violence is to completely refrain from doing it, even if that means submitting to it in order to reveal its meaninglessness compared to the Creator's power of life. This is especially difficult because we have such a long history Stretching back to the Code of Hammurabi, the first law ever written, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's a kind of thinking that's imprinted on all of humanity. Thinking that makes us feel that we need to keep believing in the violence we use as the way to stop others from using violence on us. This can only result in violence being met with violence, being met with violence, being met with violence, ad infinitum, humanity locked in a death spiral, as if such a pattern will ever have a chance to magically turn into a cure. 
Jesus in the upper room where we find ourselves today. By his forgiveness, which is the necessary other step, the first step being his utterly pacific acceptance of the cross. Jesus demonstrates with this forgiveness what God's solution to violence is. And he does so even after Thomas's angry, resentful dare, which ironically could signify a heightened spiritual state in Thomas. Don't forget that Thomas, having passed through a very challenging and tumultuous spiritual state himself, Thomas, in the end, utters the most significant declaration in all of the Gospels, my Lord and my God. So there's definitely something going on there. Thomas wants to know. We want to know. We still want to know how someone who seemed so powerless against violence could actually be the one saving us from it. That is a tough one. But if we want to really be challenged by something impossible for us to believe, try believing that there is ultimately a nonviolent way to stop violence. Believing God could raise somebody from the dead is nothing compared to that. <laughs> But hear, hear Jesus' words again. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. And finally, if Jesus really was modeling a nonviolent response to horrible violence for us as he hung on the cross, do you think he meant that to become how we respond to the violence of our times? If so, what would that mean regarding releasing our emotional investment in the necessity for accountability and consequences? Would that be scary? If so, I think we all have to ask ourselves why. <laughs>